Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Blanchett. Today's episode features coverage of viral hepatitis data from the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases, or ASLD, 2020 Annual Conference, the Liver Meeting Digital Experience. During this podcast, Dr. Nora Tarot from the University of Southern California in Los Angeles will discuss important new viral hepatitis data presented at the conference, including new findings on HPV treatment and management, hepatocellular carcinoma risk, and emerging approaches to HCV care in underserved populations. For more information on Dr. Tarot and for a link to additional online CCO coverage of the 2020 ASLD liver meeting, including a downloadable slide set covering the studies discussed in this episode, please visit the show notes. Now let's get started and hear what Dr. Tarot has to say about these new data. Wonderful. Thank you. So welcome everyone. Uh, For those of you that attended the liver meeting virtually. Um, I hope you had a a great meeting. I know that I did. Um, And for those of you not able to make it, what we hope to do today is to highlight some of the key uh, data that were presented in the realm of viral hepatitis. And so the the three broad areas that I'll be covering relate to HBV management and treatment, HCC risk evaluation, and then some of the emerging implementation science behind HCV treatment. So let's start first uh, with the HBV topic. Um, I'm gonna start with a study that I presented. It's a study from the Hepatitis B Research Network, and it represents uh, the first large randomized control trial evaluating 192 weeks of tenofovir with and without peg interferon for the first 24 weeks, followed by protocolized um, withdrawal of tenofovir DF in patients with chronic hepatitis B. So what's unique about this study is it's uh, taking patients that are treatment naive, have active hepatitis B, they're treated for a finite period of time, 192 weeks in this case, and then if they met specific criteria for withdrawal of uh, treatment, then they were withdrawn at week 192, and then the final assessment of the study was done one year later at week 240. So just to highlight a few aspects, so we're evaluating the potential benefit of adding peg peg interferon for the first 24 weeks, and we're evaluating the um, efficacy of withdrawal. So two strategies that have been looked at in other studies uh, as a way to enhance the rate of S-antigen loss. So indeed, the primary outcome from this study is S-antigen loss. As you know, there's a lot of emphasis now on that as the endpoint for therapy. We talk much more now about functional cure and the achievement of functional cure with therapy. So that indeed was the primary endpoint. And there were secondary endpoints that I'll also review. Uh, Just to review, what were the criteria for the patients to be withdrawn? They had to, at at week 192, have an HPV DNA that was less than 1,000 for 24 weeks have an absence of cirrhosis and be E-antigen negative and anti-HBE positive. So those are the criteria. And then during the withdrawal phase, there was also a protocolized uh, mechanism for restarting treatment for those individuals who had either severe or sustained ALT flares. So anybody with clinical decompensation, total bilirubin of three or greater or direct greater than or equal to one, Um, or individuals had HPV DNA levels that were greater than 10,000 with either ALT levels greater than 1,000 for a week, greater than three and 200 um, for males and females for four weeks or greater, 
or if they had uh, levels of 150 or greater for 12 weeks. So everything quite protocolized in terms of both stopping and then restarting. So who was in the study? There were 65% male, 17% non-Asian, mean age was 41 years, about half were e-antigen positive, 12% uh, genotype A, and 7% with cirrhosis. And then they had active immune active hepatitis B as shown by the ALT and HPV DNA levels. So what was the, the primary endpoint? That surface antigen loss, as you can see here at week 2240, which is the end of the follow-up period after the protocolized withdrawal, no difference between the two treatment groups in terms of the proportion that lost surface antigen, 4.5% in tenofovir versus 5.7% in the combination group. But what's interesting is the timing of surface antigen loss, and it does maybe speak to how so, you know, the influence of immunological factors and immune modulatory therapies in achieving S antigen loss. So you'll notice that in the combination group, uh, the predominance of surface antigen loss occurred earlier in treatment, whereas in the tenofovir only group, we see that S antigen loss occurs during the withdrawal phase, suggesting that the mechanisms by which these individuals ultimately got to surface antigen loss um, perhaps differed by group. Uh, now, the, the other aspects of in terms of seven secondary endpoints that were looked at, e-antigen loss, remember about half the patients were e-antigen positive. Um, there was a numerically higher proportion that lost e-antigen in the combination group, but it wasn't statistically significant. In terms of normalization of ALT, HPV DNA levels less than uh, 20, uh, no difference. And similarly, the proportion that had what we would term inactive chronic hepatitis B, meaning an HPV DNA level under 1,000 and normal ALT at the end of the treatment, uh, about half the patients, no difference between the treatment groups. Now, one final uh, bit of data is related to looking at surface antigen loss in the group that were eligible for withdrawal versus those that were, do not, that were not. And I don't think it's too surprising that the surface antigen loss in the group that was eligible for withdrawal is higher than what we see in the group that was not eligible for withdrawal. Um, but again, no differences between the treatment groups. So again, PEG interferon not looking as if it's something that's adding to the likelihood of achieving S antigen loss. And then ultimately, um, this inactive uh, chronic Hep B group, again, just to note that there's about a third of the patients in the group that was withdrawn that had inactive chronic Hep B at the end of the study. And then finally, of course, safety when you do a withdrawal study is very important. Um, you can see that the AE and SAE rates were very similar here. 24% um, of, of the patients in the tenofovir group, 31% in the combination group experienced an ALT flare, defined uh, as shown here. And interesting, again, looking at the ALT flares differed by the type of treatment uh, group. So uh, the vast majority of the flares um, in the tenofovir-only group happened when tenofovir was withdrawn. Um, and in the combination group, you can see it's about 50-50 split between those that occurred early in treatment during the interferon phase, and then uh, the other uh, approximately half occurred during the tenofovir uh, withdrawal phase. So I think this study is uh, the first to show a protocolized uh, on treatment using these two drugs, uh, but ultimately uh, showing that overall rate of S antigen loss, the primary outcome, not differing between the two treatment groups. Now, continuing along the theme of withdrawal, uh, there was a very uh, large retrospective study that was also presented. This is a, a, a study of over 1,541 patients from 12 centers in North America, Europe, and Asia. And um, these all individuals were all e-antigen negative at the time that treatment was withdrawn. 
and all, and they included both e-antigen positive at the start of treatment. Um, none of the patients in this cohort had received paganeferon um, um, for a period of, of more than 12 months before stopping treatment. Um, and you can see that again, their primary outcome here was surface antigen loss. Um, the other interesting aspect of the study is looking at how many of them had to be retreated because that's another marker of, well, what did you achieve with withdrawal? Certainly we want to get S antigen loss, but the other potential benefit is identifying individuals who have inactive chronic hepatitis B and don't require ongoing treatment. So we'll look at those two endpoints in some detail. They had a number of other uh, secondary endpoints that they looked at. Uh, again, just to characterize these um, near over 1,500 patients, mostly male, 88% Asian, 43% genotype B, uh, predominance of intecavir, but 29% also were retreated with TDF-based therapy. The majority were e-antigen negative at the start of treatment, and here are their um, mean follow-up um, after withdrawal. So again, focusing first on S-antigen loss as achievement of functional cure. Uh, first of all, I'll highlight that at one year, it's only 3%. Um, just to, to take you back to the study I just showed you at one year in the study that I uh, just reviewed you through, the rate of S-antigen loss was sort of 4 to 6% or 5 to 5%. So it's about the same ballpark. But you can see there is a, an increase over time, albeit it's, it's relatively modest. Um, and then uh, shown here are the rates of S-antigen loss by various patient characteristics. So just if you eyeball them, uh, you'll say that when you get out to this four-year time point, it seems that there's more S-antigen loss in those that are older, uh, perhaps, and certainly appears to be higher in Caucasians. Others, I would say, maybe not uh, very uh, remarkable in terms of differences. And they did go one step further and look um, then at, at the retreatment components. So remember, there's two aspects. One is did they lose S antigen? And one is, can they remain off treatment? And at one year, the proportion that are able to remain off treatment um, are 30%. That does go up to, sorry, that need retreatment is 30%. And then you can see that by the end of four years, about 50 to 60% of patients um, have resumed treatment. The flip side of that is that um, at one year, 70% do remain off treatment and at four to five years, about half. That's consistent with prior data as well that indicate that about a half would end up back, have to go back on treatment over time. Again, just looking at the characteristics, really not too much difference here in this univariate um, description of the results in terms of the proportions by age, uh, type of um, NA, race, or e-antigen status. Uh, but they did go one step further and uh, do a multivariate analysis, which is what you really want to focus on because now they can account for some of the uh, confounders. And uh, first of all, if we focus on S antigen loss, um, remarkably they showed, and this we saw in the univariate results, is that Caucasians have a, a significantly higher rate of S antigen loss than the Asians. And indeed, that was the only factor in their multivariate analysis that was associated with S antigen loss. And this is an important study because often the prior studies we've seen have been either only or predominantly in, in Asians or predominantly Caucasians. So it's a, a study in which we now got more heterogeneity in, in race. So that it allows us to look at that as a factor influencing S antigen loss. In terms of retreatment, the need for retreatment, only one factor was associated with retreatment and that was uh, age over 50. And it's a very modest, uh, you can see, uh, effect size, but um, there is an increase seen. 
And then finally, I'll just point out that in their report, 1% of patients, so 15 in total, experienced hepatic decompensation with withdrawal, just highlighting the challenges in undertaking withdrawal and the potential for patients to undergo serious flares. And in their uh, patient populations, uh, 12 patients died, uh, 75% of liver-related uh, deaths. Now we're gonna shift gears um, to uh, moving away from the withdrawal studies, which I think got a great deal of emphasis at the meeting to talking about um, a new indication or a new application of tenofovir alafenamide, and that is in the setting of mother to child transmission. As you know, the current uh, AASLD, APOSL and EASL guidelines, um, and now the WHO as well, recommend TDF as the drug of choice for prevention of mother to child transmission in women with high viremia. But of course, TAF is now a drug that we're increasingly using in our clinical practice. And I think there's great desire to have information about its safety. So this was a retrospective single arm study, E antigen positive women with a viral load over 200,000, which is the threshold for considering antiviral therapy in the second and third trimester, 71 women in this study that were treated with TAF. The primary endpoint here is around safety. So they looked at birth malformations, and of course, uh, whether it was effective in preventing mother-to-child transmission. Um, just to say a little bit about the women at baseline, they had a viral load of, of nearly eight log. Uh, most were normal ALT um, and normal um, serum creatinine. Serum creatinine. So uh, what was the, the outcome? There were um, some women had twins. So we had 73 infants and you can see no congenital defects or malformations. Um, and none of them uh, became infected. So it was 100% effective in preventing mother-to-child transmission. Of the women that were started on treatment in their second or third trimester, uh, in the third trimester, they achieved an HBV DNA less than 200,000 in 85.9% of the women. We did, they did see postpartum flares. This is very typical when you stop, uh, whether it's TDF or TAF, but in this case, 15% of the women experienced a post Partum ALT flare, um, the flare was modest and was not associated with any clinically relevant events. And they didn't see any serious adverse events in the ob observed in mothers or infants. And in particular, they looked carefully at infant development and found that they were similar to national standards. So reassuring uh, early data. Uh, and there was a second um, presentation. This was a comparison. This is a prospective observational study in which women either were on TAF or TDF um, they were started uh, gestationals week 24 to 35, a total of 238 women. You can see there's approximately equal number in the TAF and TDF groups. Similarly, this is about safety for the most part. And you can see that uh, TAF was well tolerated. They didn't have any uh, adverse events that they thought were TAF specific. Um, looking in this at the first, the bottom line here at, at follow-up, none of the infants were positive for surface antigen either group. So again, effective therapy in preventing mother-to-child transmission. And then shown in the table, I'm just going to highlight a few, primarily the, the effect of the drug in terms of suppressing HB or reducing HBV DNA level. You can see um, the drug uh, had the viral load reduction to 3.5 at the time log at the time of delivery. And then when you stop the drug postpartum, it rebounds uh, typically to baseline levels. And that was sim a similar pattern seen in the TDF group. But again, reassuring data suggesting that TAF uh, also appears to be safe in this setting. 
um, and that we have an effective therapy in terms of mother-to-child transmission. But there's still a need, I think, for more safety data to accumulate. We clearly have so much more data with TDF, and so that still remains the drug of choice, but encouraging to see these early data related to TAF. And then uh, I just want to close on the Hep B section to say that the other exciting area, of course, is new drug development. And um, here I just highlight the studies that were either phase two or phase three. And my purpose in putting this slide up is really just to say that the field looks exciting. Um, you can see that we have several drug classes available. So this is really an, um, an area in which we're seeing um, different strategies, both immune-based as well as antiviral-based, um, all aiming primarily to achieve functional cure. If we look across these studies, the patient populations that have been studied um, include those that are on NAs already and suppressed, those that have inactive chronic hepatitis B, and there are also studies using immune active chronic hepatitis B. And while phase two studies, of course, the main focus is always on safety, and um, the data presented at this meeting suggests that these classes of drugs look uh, safe, um, and so we're anticipating further drug development. Um, they're also, of course, looking at the efficacy in terms of typically a decline in surface antigen quant as a way to give a clue as to whether these drugs might be effective in terms of achieving functional cure. Uh, I'll not, I'm not going into detail on any of them, but really just to say, stay tuned. It's an exciting area, and clearly this is early phase development, but we're expecting uh, great things in the next, uh, in the next several years. So just to uh, summarize HBV, um, the HBRN study showed that withdrawal of tenofovir after four years of therapy can be safely achieved in most eligible patients. So it showed that the strategy can be utilized, but of course the rate of surface antigen loss was really quite modest with NA withdrawal. And in the HBRN study, they showed that interferon therapy for 24 weeks um, early in treatment didn't enhance that rate. Um, so we still, I think, have a long way to go in terms of understanding how best to utilize withdrawal in, in order to achieve this endpoint of S antigen loss. Um, the study that we saw, the multi-center study, also showed us that re retreatment after withdrawal of nukes um, does, does occur. Uh, typically, about 30% require retreatment at a year and up to 50% by three years. TAF in high viremic mothers uh, prevented mother-to-child transmission and appears safe. Uh, encouraging new data, and then the multiple new classes of HBV drugs uh, to stay tuned for. Okay, um, so there's two quick questions I'm going to try to address before I move on to the next section was HCC. So uh, a very good question around the Harad uh, study. The question is, was the, the Caucasian versus uh, Asians explained by genotype? All I can say that is in the, in the multivariate analysis, genotype was included in the multivariate analysis. And so they adjusted for that effect and still saw that uh, Caucasian was an independent predictor. Uh, but I think this, this question highlights that we understand that there's very high collinearity between certain genotypes and race. Um, and so whether there's some residual confounding that's still um, maybe um, contributing to this differential, I think is something that um, we need to keep in mind. But they did adjust for it in their analysis. Um, and then the second um, question is, regarding the small percentage of patients with S antigen loss, is the risk of significant flares and potential decompensation potentially greater? Absolutely the right question to ask. Um, I'm, I actually think that the data here is, is, is encouraging in the sense that it shows that if you do it in a protocolized way, you can do it safely. 
but it requires an intensive amount of monitoring. You got to be very selective about, you know, the patients that you are going to withdraw. And even still, you can have severe flares and in some cases, decompensation. And I think that's why withdrawal as a routine approach to chronic hep B is not ready for prime time yet, because we haven't yet defined the group that can get through withdrawal safely and get the desired benefit. So I think it's still sort of a work in progress. Um, and then um, one more question here is related to TDF. Is it safe at any time during pregnancy? And the answer is, um, it appears yes. So there's quite a lot of data on TDF, primarily in HIV-infected women who have gone through pregnancy. And as you know, in HIV, they stay on treatment throughout pregnancy. So there's a lot of first trimester exposures that occur in the HIV literature. And there's actually also women uh, with HBV who've been on TDF throughout their pregnancy. And um, the drug does appear to be safe uh, when applied throughout the gestational, um, uh, throughout gestation. Um, and then I'll just take one more. Oh, yeah, I knew that somebody was going to ask me about which, which new drug I'm most excited about. And I'm going to say I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> um, no, there, there's, there's certain aspects about each class that I find really very exciting. But I'll be honest with you that ultimately what I'm looking for in the future is how we put these drugs to together. It's the combinations uh, that I think are going to be the most exciting. And we are seeing some of the trials look at doing combination therapy, and I'd say look for those. I think they're the ones that are going to be sort of most informative to us uh, going forward. Okay, in the, in the interest of time, because I do want to get through our other two topics, I'm going to shift to HCC. I'll come back to remaining questions at the end. Uh, hopefully, I'll have, I'll have time. My next section is going to be looking at HCC. It's a very common uh, concern in our Hep B and our Hep C patients. Um, and I think there was two um, very interesting studies actually presented. So the first was one in which they were trying to develop a new risk score for predicting HCC called AMAP. So this is a, a very large cohort, international multi-cohort collaboration um, to try to bring together uh, a large data set to look at unique predictors of HCC. So 11 randomized controlled trials, prospective observational cohorts were also included. They included hep B, hep C, and non-viral hepatitis. So over 17,000 patients, so really remarkable. Um, I won't go through how they derived it, but they used a training cohort, which I'll show you on the next slide, and came up with this AMAP score that was highly associated and highly predictive of HCC. And you can see the components in this equation, age, sex, bilirubin, albumin, and platelets. And so, um, you know, this is the kind of thing you'll have in your calculator in the future and can calculate a score. But what they showed, so here's now the, the different cohorts. So shown here, chronic hep B cohorts, chronic hep B cohorts, hep C cohorts, and then they have the non-viral. This They developed in a hep B cohort. So the training cohort was a hep B cohort. And then you can see they validated it across these different cohorts. Now the C index is a, is a, a measure of how, how well the, the predictive score fit the data, how well it predicted HCC. And you know that anything with a C index over 0.7 is considered to be a good predictor. And you can see that it, it looks very, very good. Now this is all in HEP B cohorts and then the non-B cohort. Now, if you then extend the risk score to those that have cirrhosis versus those that are not, you can see there is some differential here with somewhat lower C indexes in the cirrhosis group compared to the no cirrhosis group. But overall performance looks quite good. I'd say very good. Um, across both C, B, and non-viral hepatitis cohorts. 
So then uh, they then took the score and said, well, what if we use specific thresholds to define, define a low and a high risk group? So they chose uh, an AMAP score under 50 to represent a low risk group. And in their um, large cohort, this was associated with a five-year cumulative HCC risk of, of less than 1%. In contrast, for example, the high-risk group had an AMAP score uh, greater than 60. You can see their five-year cumulative HCC risk is 20% at five years. So trying to now use the score to see if we can stratify our patients. Of course, when you get a score, you have to see, well, how well does it really perform in terms of being a diagnostic test or prognostic test? And you can see from looking at the, here's the threshold for the low-risk uh, patients. And you can see that, in fact, it's very good at identifying who's not going to get cancer has an NPV value of 99 to 100%. So if you have a patient with an AMAP core under 50, you can have some confidence that that's a patient who really is low risk for getting HCC. But perhaps what we're more interested in is who is the group that's at risk. So we would want to have something that has a high PPV. So what? how did their score perform there? Well, you can see not very well. So in fact, um, it's good at identifying who does not have cancer or who will not get cancer, the low risk group, but is not... Um, as helpful in terms of helping us to identify the high-risk group. You can see here that overall specificity and PPV were uh, more modest. Oh, sorry. Okay, so shifting now to um, uh, two other studies. These ones now focused on HCV. So we all know that we now have a lot of patients with HCV that are cured, um, and we all are struggling with doing a lot of surveillance on our patients after cure. Um, and I think the question is, can we kind of refine our thinking about who should be screened or needs ongoing surveillance? So let's look at two studies that help us in um, perhaps identifying higher risk group. First is the real C cohort. This is a group, um, again, studies banding, centers banding together to pro provide very large cohorts, 14 centers from Hong Kong, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan. Um, and they, um, the aim initially was just to compare those with SVR and without. I think this is a less interesting question. In fact, we already know that SVR reduces HCC rates. Uh, but after exclusions and then doing a propensity matching, I think that's where we uh, find that this is an interesting aspect to sort of see if we can identify unique predictors of HCC um, among, those, uh, up among this cohort uh, that was largely treated. So first of all, just to show that indeed um, treatment and achievement of SVR uh, reduces your rate of HCC. This is not new data. We've seen this many times before. We know that um, this is all patients. These are patients with cirrhosis. And similar to prior studies, they also show that SVR results in about a 70 to 75% reduction in the likelihood of getting HCC. But of course, this is what we worry about, is this group that has achieved SVR is still at risk for getting hepatocellular carcinoma. So how can we identify this more higher risk group? And I think the take home message for this study for me is they did a, an analysis, a multivariate analysis of fa factors associated with incident HCC, remembering this is largely a treated cohort um, in both patients with cirrhosis and then patients without. And this is interesting to me because we now are, we know that the F3 group is that group that we also have under surveillance. And the question is, do we really need to? Um, so let's focus on the cirrhosis group first. Not surprisingly, age, male sex, and more advanced liver disease um, were factors that came out in the multivariate analysis as being important. Um, but AFP, and this is AFP um, prior to treatment, an elevated AFP uh, 
in the adjusted analysis remained a predictor of your future risk of HCC. And that was the only factor in the patients without cirrhosis that turned out to be a predictor. So again, AFP greater than 10 prior to treatment uh, was what was a uh, linked with this higher risk of getting HCC in the future. So suggesting that maybe we have to look at that AFP before we treat our patients and keep that in mind as a patient that might be at higher risk for HCC after cure. And then following on along this concept of what to do with the F3 patients, I think this was a very nice study from Spain. 12, 12 centers um, looked um, at trying to identify the F3 group. Um, you could argue that maybe the two-step process isn't perfect, but I think I, I, I applaud them for really their attempt to eliminate cirrhotics and try to capture F3 patients. So what they did is they used a two-step process where they took a baseline um, transitional elastography that was between 9.5 and 14.5. And, and you might say, well, that's a little bit on the high end for F3. But then they went one step further and excluded patients that had any indirect um, evidence of cirrhosis or portal hypertension. So imaging studies, uh, imaging findings that suggested cirrhosis, thrombocytopenia, or varices on endoscopy. And that left them with 506 patients. And these are the characteristics here. You can see they're their transient elastography um, intercortal range is, is more um, sort of probably where you might expect it. And um, you can see that uh, about 10% um, uh, were genotype 3 and 18% uh, of HIV co-infection. So um, out of their 506 patients, six developed cancer over a follow-up of 33 months, five with HCC and one with intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. This was an incident rate of less than 1% per year, which is below the threshold that we typically would um, utilize, you know, would, we would typically use to recommend surveillance. Um, now, they only have six cancers, so doing multivariate analysis, I would say, is perhaps quite limited, but the only factors that they found seem to be associated with getting cancer were being older and being male. Um, and they specifically commented on things like genotype 3, um, diabetes, alcohol intake not being predictive. But just keep in mind, they're pretty modest number of outcomes, so they're limited in their powers to be able to do this multivariate analysis. So my, my summary sort of take-home messages around HCC that we learned from these three, I think, important studies. One is I think the AMAP is sort of on the right path to helping us to refine our HCC predictions in chronic hepatitis C. C and B patients, but keep in mind that this AMAP, at least with the cutoffs that were identified, are best at identifying those that are not going to get cancer and perhaps uh, not as powerful as a tool in predicting who will get cancer. Um, I think the interesting work uh, from the real C study is that this baseline AFP, an easily obtained serum marker, may provide some prognostic um, and surveillance value. Uh, for future HCC. Remember, these were done in East Asian patients. This would be nice to be validated in perhaps a Caucasian uh, or North American European population. And then I think this remains an area where we need more work, but I applaud uh, the authors for really trying to, to, to help us to understand what is the risk in this F3 group and, um, and help us to decide about what is uh, makes most sense from the point of view of ongoing surveillance. They highlight in their conclusions that the 0.5% per year is below the cost-effective surveillance threshold, um, and that age was the main predictor, although male was also one. Um, so I think this is really just an area where we need more work, but just a really, um, this is a very low risk, and maybe this is a group that ultimately we're going to move away from doing surveillance on long-term. 
Okay, so I'm gonna to try to answer a few questions before moving on to the hep C. Oh my goodness, here we go, we got a lot of... Uh, so I think that one of the questions is, um, if we're gonna screen all patients with cirrhosis for hep in the country, <laughs> I know it's an enormous, um, it's an enormous burden. Um, could the, uh, the A, AMP, AMP or AMAP, I, I say AMAP score, could it be used to help us identify a very low risk group? And I think that that's actually the strategy here, that we're gonna hopefully be able to peel off patients that have such low risk that maybe we don't need to do surveillance. And again, I think we need to refine them. We need to you know, continue to um, work towards that, but that might be one way to take the very large pool of patients that we're doing surveillance on or trying to do surveillance on and bringing it down to a group that's um, where the cost uh, effectiveness is, is um, in the range that, that is desirable. So that is one approach to, to uh, thinking about these scores. And clearly the AMAP shows us that, it, that this particular tool is good at identifying that low risk group. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so I was, I'm asked the question, would you be comfortable to stop screening HBV patients for same, same question? And I'm going to say that um, no, but <laughs> not yet. But, but I actually do feel like we're moving there. I, I really feel like when you're a person who's been doing surveillance sort of so routinely for so long, it's hard to let go of that. But we, we're going to need to because the number of individuals and I think that, that warrant screening, we want to really focus our effort on doing screening well in those that are at risk that this is, uh, these are important tools. I um, mean, they might be very uh, important tools, especially in more resource, you know, limited areas where really you can't get access easily to imaging studies, for example, where you might be able to then, you know, utilize your resources around those that are at highest risk and, um, and use a, a simple score such as the AMAP to, um, uh, as, a, as a way of identifying those that don't require screening. Okay, um, there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of people like the AMAP uh, are looking to think of how we might be able to use it. Um, can the AMAP score be used in non-viremic cirrhotic HCD patients? So I, I, in the validation, in several of the validation cohorts, there were two that were actually HCD patients with cirrhosis who had been treated. So indeed, uh, it performed quite well there. So I would say the answer to that is yes. Um, and then lastly, oh, there's now I'm getting some more hep B questions sprinkled in here. So I'm going to move on. I'll do the hep C, uh, and then I'll come back and try to uh, address all the remaining questions, uh, both uh, on B and uh, liver cancer. Um, I want to make sure I get to the hep C component. So um, I would say that the... The exciting elements for me um, at the meeting related to Hep C is really just on everybody's uh, thinking about elimination. Everyone is looking at how we implement various screening and treatment programs in order to get there. And I'm going to focus on just two studies, and they're, they're specifically studies done in persons who use drugs, because I think we all know that that's the most, you know, that's one of the areas in which we're seeing both new cases as well as there's high burden of disease, also one in which 
there's a need for us to really make, um, to evaluate models of care that will be uh, applicable to that group, which is often very marginalized in terms of their access to sort of usual care. So I wanna highlight two studies that I thought um, provide us some guidance on sort of good models of care. Uh, this is from the group from uh, Philadelphia. Um, and here they are evaluating uh, two, two models of doing treatment in persons um, who use drugs. One called the embedded HCV navigation model um, and the other called the embedded treatment model. And what's the difference between the two? In this model, the HCV navigators um, were embedded in the, in the substance use disorder uh, treatment program. So, so in the methadone clinics or the buprenorphine clinics, they were there, they were doing screening. Um, and then if they identified somebody as being infected, they were then um, serving as nurse, na um, nurse navigators or navigators to connect those patients with HCV treatment providers uh, that were outside the clinic. So that's the navigation model. The treatment model, of course, is they, they did it all in one site. So they, they, they tested and treated within the substance use disorder uh, treatment program. Um, just a little bit about the, the patients themselves um, in comparison between the two uh, treatment groups. The embedded treatment group um, was more likely to have current drug use, be homeless, have been ever incarcerated or have ever experienced overdose. Um, and uh, there were more males and non-whites, just more for information. You might argue that these characteristics might make that group uh, the embedded treatment group, an even more challenging group to undertake treatment in. Um, but these are the results, and I think it's it's very striking. Um, the embedded treatment group is in red. The navigation group is in blue. And you can see that uh, really across all aspects of the cascade of care, from having received an HCV RNA test uh, through to getting treatment started and treatment completed, that um, clearly the model in which the testing and treatment is done in the substance use disorder clinic um, is superior to one in which you try to navigate and link that, uh, that diagnosed patient uh, with a provider outside of that environment. So that I think is a very important uh, message and, and really a, a really remarkable 60% of patients that have 75% that got start on treatment, 60% uh, getting to treatment, much, much greater than in the group that um, required this linkage in order for treatment to occur. This has been shown in others, but I just think there's a very nice um, cascade that's well demonstrated in this study. And then uh, in the late breakers yesterday, um, we saw the results of the HERO study. Um, and this was a, a pragmatic uh, study that was uh, done and presented by Alan Litwin. Uh, this is a, a study in which, again, they're looking at persons uh, who use drugs these individuals were active users. And by active, um, the, the criteria here is that these individuals um, had to have had uh, in, injected uh, or used drugs within the prior 12 weeks. Um, they were in this study randomized to two forms of receiving treatment. So um, they all were treated with soft valve for 12 weeks. You can see it's a very large number of patients, um, 755. And they were randomized to what they called modified directly observed therapy and patient navigation. So the modified direct, uh, directly observed therapy was either that they were observed taking their soft valve at the same time as they were receiving their um, OAT, uh, their, their opiate substitution therapy, or uh, they uh, took a picture of themselves taking their medication and then forwarded it to the study investigators. So 
either way, they were sort of documenting that they were taking the medication. And then the patient navigator was where the patients were were supported um, through navigation in terms of um, remaining adherent to the treatment protocol. Um, And then the the main outcomes here, of course, are the proportion that initiated treatment, their ability to get through and adhere and complete. So let's uh, first of all, just look at the, the, the main outcomes, which is how many initiated treatment. It was quite similar between the two groups. The proportion that treated were similar. And you can see that an intent to treat or a per protocol analysis, uh, that there were no differences between the two approaches to supporting patients during treatment. Now, uh, I I wouldn't get too hung up on the intent to treat being at 60% because a lot of this is about patients being um, just not uh, having returned to get testing to document that they've uh, achieved SVR. You can see that you know, the per protocol analysis shows that you can get very high rates of, of SVR in these patients. So I think that that's a very encouraging message, one that we've seen previously in other studies. There's a lot of detail in this very, very large study, though, and looking at the, first of all, the predictors of SVR. Um, so I'll just share with you some of the findings is that older patients versus young were more likely to get SVR, Latino versus other ethnicity, stable versus unstable housing being on um, um, opiate substitution therapy uh, with, with methadone and buprenorphine, um, less injection use. I think this would not surprise any of us that sort of these appear, patient, patients that are in a, a place that maybe is more um, uh, a positive environment for them to be uh, focusing on treatment. A more recent injecting, uh, very frequent injecting and, and ongoing drug use was in fact negatively associated. But I would say that although they showed there was ongoing drug use during the study, that really, again, let's, let's focus on really the eye on the prize, which is that a, the, a very high rate of, of individuals achieving SVR. Um, what about adherence? And I'm going to show you a little bit more data on the next slide. I think really importantly, they showed that adherence does matter um, in that um, there was a, for every a 10% increase in being adherent, the odds of achieving SVR increased. Um, the odds of achieving SVR were higher if you completed versus didn't complete treatment. Um, and for every 10-day increase in treatment duration completed, uh, same similarly, the odds of getting SVR went up. So there's no doubt adherence matters, getting people to the end of treatment, trying to get as long a treatment duration in as possible. All of these things play a role in um, ultimately them achieving SVR. And then I think this is where uh, the most for me was uh, quite helpful is understanding this adherence piece then. So now what they're looking at here is again, the two different forms of support for the patients. Green is the the directly observed therapy, uh, the gray is the patient uh, patient navigator. And you can see that at least in the opioid treatment programs, the directly observed therapy did yield higher adherence rates than did the nurse navigator. This was not seen when they looked at the community-based uh, clinics, but, but at least in this setting, it suggests that, that that might be a benefit. Having directly observed therapy may have some role to play, particularly in this setting, in terms of a maximizing adherence. And then just in terms of what were the predictors of adherence, um, older age being employed, um, drug use more remotely um, were, were factors associated with adherence. Again, I don't think too surprising to see these negative and positive predictive factors associated with adherence. 
Uh, so just to summarize these two, I think, you know, just hats off to these investigators in, in executing these studies as well. Um, so um, the navigation, uh, you know, what they, what was interesting is that, um, that, that in the group in which we looked at whether having somebody embedded in the clinic versus linking them to treatment outside, we found that navigation was not sufficient to link the ACV positive persons who use drugs, and it was much better to embed those individuals who can do HCV treatment within the substance use uh, disorder sort of environment. So I think increasingly looking how to um, um, have that occur in one place is really the model that we should all strive for. And then the HERO study, really an enormous study that really provides important data about the ability to treat actively injecting persons who use drugs, that you can still achieve high rates of SVR in these settings. Um, and though uh, they showed really no difference in overall SVR rates by directly observed versus patient navigator support, uh, they did show that the directly observed therapy did lead to greater adherence and, and adherence does seem to be important. So ultimately, we may see that this is an important additional um, mechanism for us to think about using in our patients um, who are in the setting of, of um, using drugs and where they may need uh, sort of additional monitoring to help them get through the course of treatment. Okay, so now I'm going to pause. I have a few minutes left to try to address other questions that have come in. And I'm going to Ask Jennifer if she could help me just to identify the ones that I've not answered. There's one here that says, can I get the slides? And I think the answer to that is the session yes. will be available after. <laughs> That's an easy yeah. one. Yeah. Um, there's an, a very important question. What is the rate of HCV reinfection after achieving SVR in those who continue to inject drugs? Um, so uh, I can tell you that um, the, the study presented by Alan Litwin, they commented that they are now looking at this data. They actually have a longitudinal study to capture that information ongoingly. But there have been other groups that have looked at reinfection rates. Um, and I think if, if we look at sort of the spectrum that's out there, I think it, if you look at between one to five, one year later, five years later, but certainly at one year, it could be as high as maybe 10, five to 10%. 5% is the usual number that I think is quoted and seen in studies. Um, and I think that that's, uh, all of us would say that's a very acceptable rate, <laughs> meaning that we know that this is a group that's at high risk. And um, I, I've heard Greg Dorr say it, I think it's really a very true statement that if you don't see reinfection, then you're not really treating uh, a group that's at risk. So, uh, you know, we know this is the group we need to be getting, getting into, we need to help, we need to achieve more SVR. And so we're going to see reinfection. We've got to expect it, and we've got to be prepared to treat a second or a third time. But it, but it's a modest uh, rate of reinfection. I think that's the other message to say, at least based on the data we have thus far. And there's been some very um, so there's been some other suggestions and other studies that individuals who are treated and those that are you know engage in treatment and engage and actually achieve SVR that. It, that they also have been associated with some modifications in their drug using behavior. And, and I think perhaps the success of having, you know, been successful at achieving cure could, could maybe be something that could be used in a positive way for these individuals to make other changes in their life. So um, I think, um, you know, it's clearly the, uh, an area in which we've got to be prepared for reinfection and, and look for it and, and treat again. 
Um, there's a question about um, in the embedded treater study, was there additional adherence support to? I don't know the answer to that question actually. So uh, I have to say, I didn't see that detail um, in the presentation. Um, so I, I'm not sure if they had, you know, additional mechanisms, but I think, I think the embedded treaters by definition, those individuals are coming frequently to the clinic because they're getting their medication for treatment of substance use disorder. So by, by definition, they're getting more frequent um, contact in the context of their ACV treatment than an individual who might be referred out and be treated by someone outside of the clinic. But I honestly can say I didn't see details about that in the study. Um, okay, so a few more questions about, about AFP. Um, so one of the questions is, are there, other than AFP, are there other any other markers you suggest monitoring? Um, I don't, um, in the sense that um, I think that the, the data about AFP before treatment being a marker of ongoing risk after cure in HCV is interesting. There's also been a study that says that an elevated AFP at the end of treatment after SVR12 is also a marker for potential risk in the future. So I think, I think we should pay attention to AFP. I think it, it particularly is relevant as a marker in the setting of cure, um, or in the case of HPV, in the case of suppression, you know, where, where the ALTs are normal and neck inflammatory activity is not driving um, an, an AFP elevation. So there I think AFP elevations can be more informative. But I think overall the problem with AFP is that we all know that not every HCC produces AFP, and so you can certainly develop cancer without having elevated, elevated AFP. And, and none of the other markers that I've seen um, have really been evaluated in the context that I've been speaking about today for HBV or treated cured HCV specifically to see if they help in terms of um, defining risk for future HCC. Okay, great. Thank you, Dr. Tro, for your presentation and for insightful answers to those questions. And thanks also to listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the full AASLD 2020 Digital Liver Meeting coverage program on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes. Please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thanks. <laughs>